The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. with me. Open with me to Amos. We're going to be in chapter 5. We're continuing on in this incredible book. And um, as we get there, I want to start off with just some groundwork to make sure we're all on the same page uh, together with some context. So context. So I want to start with just this idea as you're getting to Amos, that Amos was such an unlikely person, uh, an unlikely prophet. Uh, we talked about this together, but if you, if you remember, Amos is prophesying to Israel, and yet he's not from there. That's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. He's not from there. He's a southern boy. He's from Judah. And not only that, he's from a small town in Judah. And not only that, he's from a tiny suburb of a tiny small town in Judah. And yet he's given this incredibly difficult incredibly difficult message to deliver. It's not only that. Not only was he kind of a no-name from a no-name place, um, an outsider, but not only that, he was a shepherd, a grimy, dirty shepherd, which, which on the, the, the society's hierarchy, it's the bottom rung, okay? And this is Amos, the one given, chosen by God to give this, this message, and his message was tough. But all throughout Amos, it is so clear that Amos is the man that God has chosen to deliver this message. And his message was a hard one. And if you remember, it was a bit like a spiral. And I showed a map of this, but if you remember, it was like Amos, God through Amos is issuing out woes and judgments to every single one of Israel's neighbors. Until finally they look around, there's like, there's no one left. Um, and, and when all the neighbors are taken care of, then Amos focuses in his message directly on Israel. And through this, we've used this example of like a father disciplining a son, if you remember this. So when, it's like a son who does something foolish and is getting um, in trouble. And the son tries to protect himself by saying, but dad, did you not see what my brothers did? Did you not see what they're doing out there? Like, they're the worst. Are you going to let them get away with that? I mean, if, if you saw them, what I did, like, there's that, did you not see them? And, and, and what we talked about is Amos is like God the Father lovingly taking his son and saying, son, look me in the eyes. I see them. I know them. I know what they've done. I've got them. I'm going to take care of them. And then it's like God takes him and said, son, give me your eyes. Now I want to talk about you. I want to talk to you. Amos is this letter where God talks to his children, and God disciplines those whom he loves. And this brings us to the first kind of verse of our text this morning, which is the heart of the Father. If you're a parent in here, you know that disciplining is hard. It really is. Disciplining is hard. Um, there's this old saying, son, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I don't know where that came from. But what it points to is that disciplining is hard. Parents don't discipline their children because it's awesome and fun, because it's easy. It's not. 
parent uh, disciplining is, is hard. Rebuking your children is, is difficult. But a parent disciplines their children because, not because it's easy, but because they love them. They love their kids. And so they discipline them. And, and what we see here is God, our perfectly heavenly father, disciplining those whom he, le- whom he loves, and yet his heart is breaking. Look at Amos 5.1. We'll get started into our text. It says, hear this word that I take up over you in, in what? In lamentation, O house of Israel. This word, this discipline, this judgment, it's a cause for lament. This is not like a puny sadness here. This is the word used for a funeral song. This is a deep sadness, a deep, profound sadness. Scripture says that in the moment, discipline is not pleasant, but it produces fruit. God disciplines those he loves, and in this moment, it is not a pleasant thing. It is an intense sadness, an intense sadness. The the prophet's heart is broken in lament. He's calling for lament. The father's heart is broken in lament. And we see the heart of of the father. And then very quickly, we understand the cause of this lament because we turn the corner in verse 2 and we start to read about the judgment coming. Verse 2, fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. The imagery here is incredibly sad. Fallen, helpless, no one to help you. No one there to help you get up. The word virgin here is used to communicate youth and purity, and for Israel, that was no more. It was gone, and no one's there to help. Crickets. And then in verse 3, listen to this. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the household of Israel. This just shows us, church, the extent of the devastation and the judgment. Now, um, it reminds me of a term. I don't know if you've ever used this term. It's the term decimation. Have you ever heard this term used? Decimation, we use it when we say, like, um, you know, we got decimated out there. Like, I've heard that in sports. Um, armies say that they got decimated. Uh, you hear a lot about the rainforest getting decimated. You hear this term thrown around, uh, thrown out a bit. Um, And what we use it for is we use it to just mean, hey, a lot of destruction happened. Like, a lot of destruction, large number destroyed. Um, But originally, this term had to do with a tenth. And um, it wasn't just an ambiguous large number, it was a tenth. And so we see this term all throughout history, but the most crazy usage of this term decimation is in uh, ancient Rome. They're known for being brutal, and they were. In ancient Rome, in the army, um, there was this brutal practice called decimation. And what it was is when an army unit did something foolish and did a crime, maybe mutiny, what they would do is they would take this unit in its, in its entirety, they would take one-tenth of that unit, and they would execute them so that the other nine-tenths would get in line and obey. It was a, it was a term to decimate the army um, as, a, as a way of punishment. And it comes from the Latin word meaning 10, and it describes reducing something to one-tenth. Here's what is crazy about our text, though. The judgment that is coming from God is much more than even that. Because the judgment we see here, it's not reducing something by one-tenth. It's reducing something to one-tenth. 
That is a huge, it's like reverse decimation here. Going from 1,000 to 100, 100 to 10. It was well beyond decimation. And this is why there is so much of a cause for lament. So here's my question. What do we do with this? What do we do with this call to lament and then this massive onslaught of judgment? Like how do we engage with, our, with the word of God in a text like this? Um, I want to, if, I was going to ask your permission, but I'm just going to do it anyway. I'm going to skip around in our text. We're going to be going from 1 to 15. I'm going to skip around a little bit, and the reason I'm going to do this is because I want to try to put all of these things together. The question is, what are we to do in lament? What are we to do when the judgment of God is being poured out? What are we to do with that destruction as we read it? Um, as I ask this question, I, I really believe that there is a temptation and tendency to one of two directions. In fact, when I say this, I believe we've always had this tendency to go one or two directions. When, when you and I, when we do not understand God or understand what he's doing, or you may not admit this, when you disagree with him, I think we have a tendency to do one of two things. First, to shake our fists at him. To say, God, how dare you? Like, this isn't fair? How is this right? How are you good? I thought you were good. I thought you were faithful. Where did your grace go? Where did your mercy go? What is happening? It's falling apart. You, where have you gone? I thought I was your people. Ah, shake our fists. It's our first tendency is to say, shake our fists and say, how dare you? But there's another tendency on the other end of the spectrum. And the other tendency that we might have is to try to put words into God's mouth that he didn't say. So what I mean by this is we, we see all this stuff going around and we, we say things like, yep, it's destroying it all, and I know why. It's sin. Like, are you sick? It's because you're sinful. You struggling financially? Yep, you're being smited. Like, we just put words in God's mouth and we just try to speak for him to be his, you know, boom, smite. We know it. We know what... So we either shake our fists at him or try to put words in his mouth when he's doing things in our life that we maybe don't fully understand or do not agree with, um, including things like judgment and discipline. And um, let me tell you, both of these tendencies are uh, problematic. Um, and just for a moment... I'm going to read in, in Amos here. Before I read in Amos, though, I want to um, bring out something that just hit me this week and helped me in my study of Amos. And it's actually the story in book of Job. If you remember Job, crazy story. It's one of tragedy. But if you remember, it starts with Job, a righteous man, like blessed, healthy, wealthy, righteous. Um, it's a good day to be Job in Job 1. Um, and uh, yet in the early chapters of the book, we see this crazy scene where the enemy goes before God, and God gives the enemy, grants the enemy freedom to come against Job. The enemy says, you know what? God, Job only loves you because you're good to him. Job has this prosperity gospel thing. That's the only reason he likes you, but if you take away all that stuff, he's going to curse you. 
He's not going to live for you. He only likes you because you're stuff. He's going to walk away from you. And God says, no, he's mine apart from that, and he's going to prove that. And so here's the thing, though. The thing you need to understand about Job is that God didn't pause the story and say, let me go talk to Job about this. Let me go let him know what's going on. Let me get his opinion on what I'm about to do to his, just give a heads up consultation with Job. No, in the early chapters, Job loses everything, his health, his uh, wealth, people in his life that he loves, even his wife says, husband, Job, curse God, die, it's better than this, and, and yet Job, we read in the first few chapters, Job says, he remains faithful, and he says, God gives, and he takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, he says this a couple times, blessed be the name of the Lord, here's the thing, and here's why I bring up Job, um, this morning. So Job, in the book of Job, what I just gave you, what I just walked through is the first two chapters. And if you know anything about the book of Job, is that Job is a long book. Long book. I just described the first two chapters. Well, for the next 35 chapters, church, the next 35 chapters is spent with Job and his friends chapter after chapter trying to speak for God and trying to say what God was doing. Chapter by chapter. Some accuse God of doing it. Others say he's allowing it. And in 35 chapters, they go back and forth saying, God, where were you? Like, where were you? Shaking their fists. 35 chapters of all of their wisest words. It's a lot to read. And after all of their wisest words, finally God speaks in Job 38. He says a lot. I'm going to just start where he starts. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have that understanding who determined its measurements? Surely, Job, you know that. They were asking, God, where were you? And here God shows up and says, Job, where were you? And he puts him in his place. Where were you when I created it all? Where were you? Surely you know when I put all the stars in their place. And do you know what Job's response was? After all of his long-winded 35 chapters, back and forth, back and forth, um, I'll give you a hint what his response was. It was brief. Job 40. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. Yep. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, I will not answer. Twice, I will proceed no further. Church, Job was silent. See, our temptation is to shake our fists at God, to speak for him, to fill the room with all of our words and wisdom when he doesn't give us answers. But in the presence of our God, in the presence of his righteousness, do you know what happens? Our fist comes down in our mouth, hmm. or to put it in Job's words, our fist comes down and it covers the mouth, silent. The reason I bring this up is because, church, I believe this is exactly what we're seeing 
in, um, in Amos, especially as you look at verse 8. Look at the words here. He who made the Pleiades in, the Orion, in Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. It's a very Job-like response that we're given here. And then guess what? In light of that, just like Job, verse 13, therefore he is prudent. He who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Church, don't hear me wrong here. When you see this, therefore, that he who is wise will keep his mouth shut. This is not saying, hey, if you're wise, you're not going to say anything when you see injustice. You're going to keep your mouth shut. You're going to shut down. You're not going to engage. You're going to let it all happen. Don't speak up with injustice. Don't say anything about sin. That is not what this text says. In fact, we're going to see the opposite command in this text in Amos. What this text is saying is that in, the, in light of, in the presence of our God, his power, his might, his holiness, his righteousness, his judgment, in the, in the presence of that, the hands that once shook up at him now comes over our mouth and we are silent. We are silent before him because we know he is just, because we know he is holy, he is righteous. We are like Job and we are silent and we lament. The, that's, we talk about the heart of God. This is, this is the call of the people. This is the heart of the people as we come to God. And, and so in our text, I, I want to pull out one more thing here. Um, what was the sin of the people that God was so mad about? Well, fortunately, um, we're far enough into Amos now where what he is calling out is starting to become crystal clear. Um, and we see it a lot in our text today, and we're going to walk through these. So Amos is very clear, and he's, we see the same things over and over and over and over again. And I think it kind of boils down into three things that God is calling out in the people in Amos. And so we'll just take them one by one. The first thing that God is calling out here is that the people hated the truth and the truth-tellers. We read this in verse 10. They hate him who reproves at the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. The gate was a place of public discourse to talk about what is right, decide things in the community, and they hated the truth being brought to the gate. They abhorred those who spoke the truth at the gate. They loved injustice and therefore hated the truth, and they hated the ones who told the truth. That leads us to our second. The second is that the people trampled the poor. Used them, oppressed them, ignored their pain. Verse 11, therefore, because you trample on the poor, you exact taxes of grain from him. If you look at the end of verse 12, you turn aside the needy in the gate. Listen, this is not the heart of God for his people. And in fact, this is a huge departure from what God had called them to be. You don't need to turn with me here uh, to these places because I'm going to bounce a little bit. But I, I, I couldn't pass not sharing some of these because I think that we just kind of think, yeah, of course God um, wants us to be nice to those who are in need. <laughs> it's more than that, church. He has written it in his word from day one. And I look, I look, um, I could pick a lot of these. I'm going to just pick 
two, maybe three. Uh, Leviticus 19. Listen to what I'm about to read and compare it to the people in Amos. Uh, in, in Leviticus 19, verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap up to the edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your har- harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes on your vineyard. Why is that? That seems wasteful. Well, God says, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. And then he follows this up and he says, I am the Lord, your God. This is his heart for the people. Exodus 22. If you lend money to any people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. Uh, you shall not exact, exact interest from him. You see the people in Amos doing that very same thing. Deuteronomy 15. Among you, if among you one of your brothers should become poor, if any of, any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother or leave him out at the gate, but you shall open your hand and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Yeah, I'm going to give you one more. I said three. I lied. Four. Here we go. Deuteronomy 24, verse 14 says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who is in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be found guilty of sin. Church, I could have picked a lot more. The reason I bring these out is because I wanted you to see how far the people of God had come from the way of God that God had given them in his law. The people who were here rejecting and trampling the poor were the same people who were given this command for them. And here's the thing. We've talked about this. They were blessed. They were doing great financially. The people of, in Amos' time, they were, they, were, they were sailing, and yet they were not contributing to the poor, helping the hurting, stewarding their resources. They were not loving people and using money. They switched those and loved their money and used people to get more of it. This, they were hoarding. They were using the poor, trampling them, ignoring them, turning them away. So they hated the truth and the truth-tellers. And they trampled on the poor. There's one more uh, that I want to bring out, and that is that the people here were actively promoting and contributing to injustice. In verse 7, it, it, he says in, in Amos 5, 7, O you who turn justice into wormwood and cast down the righteous to the earth. He goes on to say, verse 12, For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. A couple things here, just real quickly. I want to make sure we never forget this. Um, We believe, because of Scripture, that we are created in the image of God. And that all human life, because of the Imago Dei, has incredible value. And this value that we have as being created in the image of God has nothing to do with how much you contribute or how much you have in your savings account or how much you own or how high you are in society. None of it. We believe 
because of Scripture that our value in our, is in the identity we have as an image bearer of God, and it is an incredible value. That's why we believe in the sanctity of all human life, because we are created in the image of God, and there is such value in that as an image bearer of God. And this means, if we follow this out, that God actually cares, not just about you and him, but God actually cares about the way you treat people in your life, the way you care, the way you, the way you treat one another. What this means is that God does not give you the option to just look at all of the brokenness out there and say, ah, it's broken, it's going to burn, it's not my home, I'll just take care of my family, make sure we're good, and they can just, they're broken anyway, just meh. We, church, don't get that right. God does not give you that path. Um, we can't also, God doesn't give us the ability or the pathway for us to see all the brokenness up there and to say, you know what, we need to buy land in the middle of the woods so we don't touch any of that. Run for the hills. I don't want their ickiness to get on me, right? God doesn't give us that option. Why? It's because God loves the broken. His heart is broken for the broken, and our hearts should break for the broken. And yet in Amos, the people had lost sight of that, and they were focused on themselves, getting more and more and then more and then a little more and then getting a bigger house on top of that. We see this in Amos 5.11. You see him trampling the poor, exacting taxes of grain. But then listen to this. Because of this, uh, God says, you have built these houses of stone. They're awesome, but you're not going to live in them. You planted pleasant vineyards. You know what, though? You're not going to drink of their wine. In other words, your focus has been on more and then more and then more and then more, more wine, more houses, and you used injustice to get it. But yet in the end, you will not truly enjoy it. You're going to lose it. This reminds me of Jesus' words. This might have come to your mind. Jesus' words in Mark 8, when he says, if anyone were to come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. And then listen to what he says. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does, listen to this, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? To have all the houses and all the vineyards, what does it profit a man to have all of that and yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? And as we see in Amos, there is absolutely no profit and no return. It's folly. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Well, we would do well to remember Amos. So we see in Amos, we had these three things. We have one, they hated the truth and truth tellers. We had two, they were trampling the poor. And then number three is they were actively contributing to and promoting injustice. And just as the sin was extensive, so was the judgment. I already read this verse, but if you remember, God says that the city that went out a thousand will have a hundred left. The city that has a hundred will have ten left in the house of Israel. So we're not, talk, we're, we're not talking like one of ten here. We're talking nine out of ten here. This is extensive. We're talking 90%. The sin is rampant, and it leads me to the most important question I think we have of this morning. And it struck me as I was reading this this week from our text, what about the 10%? What about the 10%? You know, you had the out of the 1,000, what about that 100? And out of the 
100. What about that 10? Here's the thing. Out of, out of all of the wickedness and sin, which was rampant here, out of all of that, though, out of all the people who were turning away, here's the thing. There was a remnant. Do you notice it in our text? There is a remnant. There is this remnant. And, and Amos calls out to those who would hear. God is calling out to them, to this remnant. And there is this phrase that he repeats multiple times. And you probably picked up on it in this, in this chapter. He repeats this three times in verses 4, 6, and 14. And the saying is something like this. Seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. In verse 4, thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Don't seek Bethel. Don't go into uh, Gilgal. Cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal, it's not going well. They're going to go into exile. Bethel shall come to nothing. In other words, don't turn anywhere else for help. Your help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Seek the Lord and live. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. Lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph. It will devour and none to quench it for in, in Bethel. Who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. In other words, judgment is coming. And, and you're not going to be able to just ignore it or escape it. And so God says, don't try to ignore it. Don't try to escape it. Seek the Lord. Seek me and live. And then the, the last two verses, in verses 14 and 15... I want to drill down into these, okay? It says this, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. There is a beautiful call here by God to this remnant. We're not going to go any, we're not going to go 16 or beyond. We're coming back to that next week. But I want to finish here because there are three things here in this, in this verse that I want to bring out. There's three callings that, that I see that hits really close to home uh, for us. Because listen, in a world that has turned away from God, in a culture that has turned away from God's word, in a culture that hates truth, suppresses it, hates truth tellers even more, in a culture that the poor are trampled, used, and ignored, um, in a culture that actively promotes injustice and craziness. In that world, in that culture, God calls his remnant here in Amos to three things. First, he gives his remnant a call to be countercultural. Here's what I mean by this. In a world that loves evil and hates good and promotes injustice, verse 15 tells you, hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. They are called to be this countercultural voice. They will stand out, and there's just no way of getting around that. You, church, are called to be a countercultural voice. You will stand out, and there's no getting around that. The call for the remnant you are vastly outnumbered, and yet your call is to be countercultural, and it leads to the second. They're related. This is probably not the most popular thing that I could preach about this morning. Oh, well, here it goes. He gives them the call to be hated. 
Just think about it. Amos says in verse 510, this is subtle. In 510, they hate him who reproves at the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. And yet God's calling you, in verse 15, to hate evil, love good, and establish justice at that gate. What does that mean? It means that God is actively calling you to be the one they hate. That means they will hate you. And that means that being hated doesn't mean that you and I are doing something wrong. Or that we should have found a more tiptoe around kind of way to say it, to not offend. In fact, Jesus already told us in John 15, if the world hates you, know it hated me way before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you, in verse 19, as, as its own. But because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Uh, please don't hear me wrong here when I say this. When I give you this call to go be hated, please, please hear me. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not asking you to be a jerk, an arrogant know-it-all who you walk out and you give all this air and they're like, I hate you. And it's not because of the truth, it's because you're a jerk. Like, I'm not saying that, and that's not what Scripture's calling you to do, okay? Scripture's not calling you to go out and be hated because you're terrible. That's not why you're to be hated. Scripture is calling for the remnant here to be hated because of the truth that we cannot put down. To be hated because of Christ. They hated him, and therefore they hate us. In Amos, they hate the truth, and they hate the truth-tellers at the gate. For the remnant, for, for those who seek to uh, seek the Lord and live, we are called to the truth and to establish that truth at the gate. God is the truth. Christ is the way. Christ is the truth. They hate the truth because they don't see and they can't see. And for Amos, and just like what Jesus says, they don't, they don't just hate the truth. But they hate the truth-tellers. And so the call to seek the Lord and live, this call, it's a call to be this countercultural 10% remnant life. And that call is often, church, for you to be greatly misunderstood. To be misunderstood, to be hated. And um, I would argue this has not changed for his church, his remnant today. Increasingly, there is a high social cost to following Christ. Not because you're a jerk, but because of Jesus. Today, there is a, a higher social cost that we pay because of the truth of Christ that we believe and proclaim. In other words, I, I think there is coming a time, and I honestly think it's here for most of us, when it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, for you and I not to offend. There's going to be fewer ways to say things and to tiptoe around things and to use softer words. There's going to be fewer ways for us not to offend. Maybe you're feeling this. But there's coming a time when being a Christian will be abhorred. The question is, what will you do? What will we do when that happens? That is what was happening in Amos. And that's what this remnant was facing. 
What will we do? What will we do with this call to be countercultural, even when there's a social cost to pay? In John 16, Jesus says to his followers, I have said these things to you that, that, that in me you might have peace. And then he says, listen, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He gives this, his call to, this, to the remnant, a call to be countercultural and often a call to be hated. But I don't want you to miss the third call. The third call that we see here ultimately is he gives this remnant a call to life. Seek the Lord and live. Seek me and live. Seek my way. Seek what is good and live. This is a call to life. Not just eternal life later, but abundant life today. This is a call to life. Like in Amos' time, the world might look appealing. It look, might look like things are, you know, they got their stuff together. They have all the money and the power. But there's no life in that, Amos says. It's broken and breaking. But in the midst of all of that, God is giving us this call for his people. And the call is to life. The call is life in Christ. God says in verse 15 of our text, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. In other words, be countercultural, be hated, but listen, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Church, that is grace. There is grace for the remnant. We know that in Christ, there is grace for the remnant. Just like in Amos, we know that our God is perfect, he's holy, he's just, and we know that he's the judge and he will judge. We know this. Just like in Amos, we know that the judgment of God is real and that it is coming. We know this. Just like in Amos, we know that also we deserve that judgment. That for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of that sin is death. We know this. And just like in Amos, we know we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We know this. But God being rich in mercy and love. Just like in Amos, we know that God has called to himself a remnant to seek him and to live, to truly live. And just like in Amos, there is this calling to the grace of God. Grace, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is, this is our call this morning. Here's, here's the question. Are you his remnant? Are you his remnant? Are you part of his body, the church? Are you saved by grace through faith in Christ? Are you his remnant? If your answer is yes, if your answer is yes, then this is a time, a reminder for, for you to be countercultural even when at times you may face some heat for it. Because you can't love what the world loves, and there's a cost to pay for that. You can't celebrate and promote what they celebrate and promote. And you may face persecution and trials for that. That's your calling as the remnant. What will you do? This is where true abundant life is found. If you're the remnant, this is your call to life. But hear me, if you're here and you hear all this and your answer is, you know, no, or I don't know, or I'm unsure, or, or whatever it might be, the call for you is so simple and straightforward from this text, and I love this text because of it. God's word says this to you this morning three times. Seek the Lord and live. 
Seek the Lord and live. The call for you is the same today as it was for the people in Amos. Seek the Lord and live. And here's the good news, and I love getting the privilege of preaching this. Here's the good news. Scripture says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love getting to preach this. Seek the Lord and live. That means don't wait, don't put it off, don't try to, don't try to play both sides. Seek the Lord and live. Salvation is in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, I have one more verse, and I can't not say it. In Matthew, Jesus says, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Seek the Lord and live. 